Well, I, was just, I said Rosemary first. So Rosemary, you have to react first. Act natural. Go. <laughs> I, I can't. I'm not an actor. I'm an engineer. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, number one, today is our 100th episode. So can I get a woo from the crowd? Woo! Woo, someone. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, there's our very uh, nerdy celebration for everyone, but we do greatly appreciate you being with us here for uh, 100 episodes. So I guess, Alan, it's got to be, what, almost two years to the yeah. close, close into, I guess maybe we're a month away, right? There's 52 weeks in a year. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know math. Um, but yeah, it's been a long, good two years, and we appreciate you listening. So uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about offshore wind farms, maybe doubling as carbon capture devices. We'll talk about a recent rotor crash off a of Siemens Gamesa wind turbine, which seems strange. Uh, the shakeup in leadership at the top of Siemens Gamesa. We'll talk about a recent uh, ship that's collided with a offshore wind farm, um, kind of at drift at sea, which is also crazy. And we'll chat through a little bit about uh, ships in general and the offshore wind projects um, that they're going to have to serve. And they're kind of outpacing those. We'll also talk about Louisiana. They've got some offshore wind goals that might be, I don't know, in harm's way, Hurricane Alley down there. And then lastly, we'll talk about a new uh, impossible, quote unquote, uh, material that's stronger than steel and as light as plastic. So we'll see what our uh, composites experts here think about that. Before we get going, be sure to subscribe to number one, uh, Rosemary's YouTube channel, which you'll find in the show notes below. And Uptime Tech News, which is our weekly email update about the podcast and current events here in the wind industry. So uh, first thing is this crazy rotor that fell off a, I don't know, the the term fell off seems really, I don't know, flippant and weird to use about a (laughs) huge industrial machine, but it's kind of what it seems like. There was a two megawatt G97 turbine uh, on a a farm in uh, Brazil. And it looks like the nacelle's fine, the tower's fine, but just the rotor fell off. Rosemary, what, how, how? Yeah, it's crazy. What what is that? It it looks like it's I don't know. Did they forget to install some bolts, or maybe there's even some some evidence of of overheating or fire? I see a lot of of brownish black black residue on there. But yeah, no, that is that is crazy. And I mean, it's got to it it can't just be like one faulty bolt or or something it's got to be some um incorrect installation procedure surely to to see the entire rotor just fall off yeah it says it came online the wind farm on 2014 so it's eight years old so did something like a bolt shear off maybe and allow this to just because it really looks like i don't know i feel like this should be held in pretty well pretty well like you don't hear about this very often (laughs) i was gonna say uh maybe 
they weren't maintaining properly. They weren't checking the the torque on the on the bolts, and some wriggled wriggled loose. And you know, once a couple of bolts wriggle loose, and something breaks, and it puts a lot of stress on on the other ones. And so you can go from having a really high safety factor to having a negative safety factor um, if you don't address it. But usually, those um, maintenance procedures for major components like that are pretty pretty dialed down. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess something. Something has gone wrong there. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it would have made a little bit of noise before it fell off, you, you think. It would have rattled, squeaked something, overheated. You would have saw smoke coming out, something in there before it decided to fall off. That's a really catastrophic event. I've, I've never seen that kind of damage. We've seen blades fall, break off all the time, but to have all three blades come off at one time, that's scary. That is scary. It's dangerous if you're around that, for sure. Yeah, it must have been really interesting to to watch that if anyone had seen it, which is, gives more credence to my desire to have 24-7 uh, video surveillance of all these wind farms just so we can see the cool stuff that happens when things occasionally go wrong. So, but yeah, well, we'll check back and see if there's more reporting about that, about what actually happened, because um, it does seem like a really oddball um, failure. So moving on, uh, offshore wind, there's interesting article in Fast Company about them potentially doubling as carbon capture devices. Um, Rosemary, you're our, our carbon capturing expert. Um, is this something you see as, you know, every, there's a big trend of like, hey, let's combine everything that we can and make this, everything's an ecosystem, right? Is this one that's going to make sense in your opinion? Yes and no. So the the yes part of it is that I do think that it definitely makes sense to co-locate direct air capture with where you're going to store the CO2 because that can cut out a lot of problems if you don't have to worry about transporting and you know, compressing and transporting CO2. So if you put uh, direct air capture directly above um, some, you know, storage reservoir or the correct geological formation, then I think that you can cut out a potentially big problem. But the two downsides to it that I see are, one, anytime anyone's planning to use just excess electricity, excess green electricity to power something, whether it's, you know, hydrogen production or direct air capture, uh, you usually see you see a lot of those kinds of plans announced, and then if you track the projects as they progress, they almost always move away from just using um, you know these intermittent cheap um, periods of electricity because you find that you need to operate your equipment for much longer periods to be able to make it economical. So you know if you've only got say negative electricity prices, even where they're very pervasive um, in some parts of Australia at the moment, it's you know still only around 10% of the time. Um, and if you buy a really expensive piece of equipment, then um, you're, you don't want to only use it 10% of the time. So you inevitably end up um, needing to operate it more and more and more to make the, you know, the cost of what you're trying to do cheaper. So I think that that's, um, yeah, that that's, it's, it's unlikely that we would see it used in that way. And then the other aspect that will make it challenging is that direct air capture is a pretty immature technology and the idea that you would then go put this, you know, new maturing equipment offshore is, I say this every time anyone comes up with a crazy offshore plan, but, you know, you just really complicate um, your learning curve if you need to get a helicopter <laughs> every time that you want to tweak something on your equipment or, um, you know, repair something that um, that failed and you needed to redesign it. So. 
I think it'll be a long, long way in the future before we actually see a plan like this come off. But yeah, I think overall the idea of storing CO2, um, capturing it where it's stored is, is a solid one. So Rosemary, I think I looked at the numbers of, uh, of systems you would need to actually get to the, and the, the number is fluctuates, but I think you need to pull like a hundred gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's the general claim right now. But one of these systems, like on the all of the East Coast of the United States, would pull out half a million tons. So you, you start running the numbers. You need about 200,000 of these units uh, along the East Coast to, to get the enough carbon capture out of the air. And I so the math in my head didn't work. Like that 200,000 of these systems is a lot. And if we're only relying on that little sliver of time to 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 pull energy, basically the free energy out, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But I saw some Twitter stuff from you this week, and so I'll mention it. I noticed that you were talking. Oh no, I saw your video. I saw your YouTube video, which is very good, by the way, about hydrogen You're in trouble transport. Now. You're in trouble now. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, your tweets. <laughs> you were talking about hydrogen transport and all the complaints from the, the the clean energy people saying that's crazy. It's too much money. Why would they do that? It's a waste of time. And your response is like, well, let them try it, then we'll find out for sure. Yeah, let them do it. Yeah, fine. It's their money. Let them try it. No, yeah, I think the same thing here. This carbon capture. I agree, and it's something that um, I have. <laughs> I've learned this from experience in my uh, career. You know, managing technology projects, you have a lot of a lot of diverse um, minds on your team. A lot of very smart people um, who don't always agree, and oftentimes, you know, there's competing opinions about which is the the best way to do something. And if you just let engineers be engineers, then you'll just talk about it every single meeting for <laughs> you know years if you don't if you don't stop. It, getting yeah. more and more involved in your analysis. And sometimes you've just got to say, you could try this out in one week, try it, see if it works. And <laughs> the beauty of that is that somebody who has actually tried to make something work and found that they couldn't, they're legitimately going to change their mind about um, what they think is the best thing to do. Whereas if you just argue with them and try and reason, it's so unlikely that people um, actually change their mind that way. <laughs> so I, I think with the, the hydrogen economy, you, you know, we, we really do have too much talking, too much analysis. And even though a lot of, I got a lot of criticism on that particular video that, you know, we already know that liquid. You did. Yeah. I was shocked. <laughs> I wasn't shocked. I already knew that it was <laughs> not the mainstream <laughs> opinion. But people say, you know, we already know that liquid hydrogen transport doesn't, doesn't make sense. Um, like from a, a technological point of view. But everyone doesn't know that because if they did know that, they wouldn't still be pushing it. I, I really don't believe that everybody who, um, you know, is interested in these technologies is just, you know, some some PR person for the fossil fuel industry. I, I, there's a lot of well-intentioned people um, and I think that those people will change their minds if they see that it's harder and more expensive than they thought. And, you know, maybe, maybe we're the ones that are, are, are wrong and you've got to, you know, keep an open mind. And if it works out really well and um, makes a lot of money for the people involved, then we'll see them roll out. So we'll, you know, we'll know how it worked out. Almost every renewable energy source right now that we have started because someone was crazy enough to try it. 
especially like wind energy. Yeah. That's that's totally the place it came from. <laughs> we're just going to try it, see what we can do, right? And all of a sudden, we're making 15 mega, megawatt turbines. <laughs> it started with an idea and somebody trying it. So I think that's totally the right approach. Yeah. Let them try it and maybe it'll work. Yeah. Great. And a lot of really dumb ideas have have dropped out along the way as well, including some that were sounded yeah. sounded great, but just proved to be too difficult to implement. And direct air capture is really interesting because, um, you know, on the one hand, it's so dumb compared to like if you want to capture you want to capture CO two out of the atmosphere, you pay at least hundreds of dollars a ton, and probably more like a thousand dollars a ton. And at this, if we're doing that at the same time that we're continuing to emit from sources that we can easily replace if we had a thousand dollars per ton of CO2, like you, there would be no question you would close every coal power plant on the planet immediately if there was a, you know, a thousand dollar a ton, um, price on, on CO2. Sure. Um, and many, sure. many, many other, other sources that you can easily change to get bigger reductions. So on that sense, from today's point of view, it doesn't make any sense and it will never make sense to do direct air capture instead of decarbonizing. And I think that a lot of the time that people talk about direct air capture, especially the articles that are written about it, it's from the point of view that we can do this instead of decarbonizing. And it just is never going to work that way unless you want to just pay ridiculous amounts for your, your energy. Um, yeah. And also, Direct air capture uses a lot of energy, so we have to make more energy and pay more for it. I mean, it's just it, it's right. a crazy way to approach the energy transition. But if you think of it as something to do after we have decarbonized, then I think it's really important that we are making advances in that technology now so that in 20, 30 years when we have got rid of everything that is remotely easy to do with decarbonization, that's there for the last bit. Well, speaking of transitions, uh, Siemens Gamesa has had a number of them recently, um, this yeah. one uh, with their CEO. So uh, Andreas Nowen was their CEO of Siemens Gamesa from June 2020. Uh, he's going to be stepping down later this month. Uh, of course, he was the CEO of their offshore segment from November of 17 to June 2020. Um, so about five years at the helm of, you know, their smaller, their, their offshore unit only, and then the entire uh, wind uh, unit. So Alan, it sounds like this change from your perspective is that they need maybe a leader who's got more experience in getting them through this sort of supply chain crisis that they're going through. So sure. the person they've, they've tapped here is Jakin Eichholt, um, and he's got an engineering background and he's a board member at Siemens Energy. Um, Alan, I mean, what, what's your take on this shakeup? Obviously, they've had two CEOs in, what is it, three-year period now? It's a pretty short period. And um, it seems like they're just trying to get this ship sort of uh, back on course. Right. And I, I think if you're watching from the outside, you think, oh, there's the CEOs are changing. That's a lot of turbulence. Uh, there is unstable situation at the helm of these large companies. Well, the, the, the fact is, is that through COVID, uh, so much has changed. And the way that the wind energy business has, is evolving right now, where prices are being driven down and you have supply chain issues and you have raw material price increases, that's a, that is a really challenging environment. And for those spe 
specifics, that type of business environment, you want somebody who has dealt with those specific issues before. It's like a skill set. You know, if you've ever been around supply chain when <laughs> dealing with supplier issues, it's a real talent. You have, and, and it, it's not just the CEO, really. It tends to be a lot of the upper level management needs to change focus, maybe change positions because you're going to bring in people who have a, a direct skill set to making sure that suppliers deliver on time and that they're delivering the product you paid for. And those conversations can get between suppliers uh, and your, in your supply chain can get really rough. Uh, many a time in my career, you're kind of walking by the procurement area and you just hear yelling and screaming. And it, it's a tough, tough world. It, and, and that's the kind of, per, sometimes that's the personality you need to move the business forward. And, and, it's, and when you're in a, a more pleasant environment, like you were sort of, pre, you know, 2019 on where you're just doing R&D, you can't lose, you're winning contracts. That's a different kind of person to drive the, the company forward. But if you're trying to basically get the legs back underneath a company, it, it takes a certain skill set. So I, this is expected. I, I don't think it's going to stop here, actually. I think a lot of the companies, if they're not changing some of the leadership, some of the people they're going to bring in underneath of them are going to change in the next couple of weeks, really. Yeah. Well, Rosemary, you, you've worked at one of these companies before, it, it, it's stressful, right? As an employee of a large wind energy organization, when you see changes at the top, it, it, usually when I worked at a company like that, it, I would be really hesitant. It's just, oh, oh no, you know, things aren't things aren't stable. My job may be at risk. That's probably true right now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you don't change CEO twice in two years because everything is uh, hunky dory. I think <laughs> I don't. It's not like it's un, unusual for Siemens Gamesa that um, that they're facing these challenges. Everyone in every industry, not just the wind industry, has massive supply chain problems at the moment. But yeah, it needs a a big shake up in strategy. So you know, it's good good that they've recognized that and that they're you know bringing in what they need but of, of course the employees are going to be disrupted and it always brings in changes to the way things operate and a changing of priorities so it can be very frustrating sure. if, you know you thought you were working really hard on a high priority project and and that gets <laughs> that gets dumped when leadership changes it's demotivating so I guess they'll have to manage that situation as well. Well, moving on, uh, there is a crazy situation out in the ocean. Um, a transport uh, vessel, the Julieta, has co collided with another tanker and then was set adrift as the captain and first mate maybe abandoned the ship prematurely. They have actually been arrested and they're trying to figure out if they ab abandoned the ship too soon because they're supposed to stay on there unless their lives are essentially, I guess, in immediate uh, peril. So... Pretty interesting situation, and, and the ship was just ad adrift, um, collided uh, with a offshore wind pylon. Is that right, Alan? Yeah, piling that was <laughs> planted in the sea, sea, sea floor, it, uh, which is double scary, right? Uh, for everybody's sake. And I, I, I hadn't seen that happen before, but as we put more and more pilings out in the ocean, eventually some adrift ship is going to run into them and it had happened before uh back in like 2014 or 15 around the uk that they had a very similar situation happen and that's very worrisome right that if i think in both cases there weren't wind turbines on those uh pilings at the time but as we get more and more wind turbines offshore 
it's inevitable, right? I mean, the, the, the situation that happened over in Denmark recently was, it was just a really bad weather condition and two ships met in the middle of the sea. What are the odds of that, right? And then combined with, uh, uh, the video I saw was they were pulling the crew off the off the ship with helicopters because everything, all the, all the controls had gone out and it was just adrift at that point. But the chances that it runs into a wind turbine are relatively high, <laughs> especially off the coast, east coast of the United States, where we're going to put thousands of these things. Um, it will be a problem. And, and I always wonder, how do you even address that? Do you do you address it or you just say, you know what, it's one of those, uh, <laughs> does, it, does the insurance company start paying out? Who who handles the loss there? Because it's not an act of God, right? It, it, is, it is a foreseeable thing. Yeah, I think the ship needs to pull over and then exchange insurance cards <laughs> with the wind turbine. And, uh, you know, wait for the Coast Guard to get there and they'll hash it out. And yeah, that kind of, that kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, who the Coast Guard's going to love that one. I think it collided with another ship as well before uh, the wind turbine, didn't it? Right. Um, a ship what, that yeah. was carrying yeah. ke chemicals or something. So um, it, I would assume, I don't I have no knowledge of the industry, but I would assume that the ship has insurance and that that is going to sure. going to pay out for damage to other ships and wind turbines that it's hitting like it's just you know floating around like it's a, in a pinball machine or something. It's uh, it's obviously not an ideal situation. <laughs> yeah, it was an oil tanker that the Julieta hit. The Julieta is a, a cargo ship, and they hit an oil tanker. So luckily, it doesn't seem too too terrible considering all the I don't know possible ways it could go down. Um, but still a pretty crazy situation. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously there's going to be more traffic in these areas where there's wind farms and, um, but I don't know. I assume that they have sort of ship traffic control, just like aircraft traffic control. It's going <laughs> to give them some buffer as they make these routes around. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure how all that works, but you, you think that they're already starting to plan for this kind of thing. This seems like it's probably exceedingly rare that this would happen. I hope so. It better be as we go forward. Obviously, offshore wind construction is rapidly increasing in, in speed. And a lot of these vessels, which we've talked about a little bit in the past, that these vessels have to get bigger and bigger to install them, you know, these uh, jack-up vessels. And it looks like we're going to continue to outpace uh, the creation of these ships with the creation of these wind farms where there might be a, a bottleneck in the future. Um, Alan, do you see that this is maybe going to hit that sort of constraint point where we just might not have enough ships to get this done? Or do you think people have already started to forecast this out and maybe these shipbuilders are, are already well aware and, and well ahead of this issue. Yeah, and, and the interesting piece of the United States is we have laws that prohibit the use of ships built outside of the U.S. to do sort of U.S. to U.S. duty, and there isn't any. But uh, there, there's they don't have any ships built to, to to put wind turbines out in the ocean at the moment. So I'm not sure how that's going to work. I know that I think the first one's supposed to come due in 2023, but I, I learned an interesting uh, measure. <laughs> which was, I think the term was ship years. 
the number of ships and the number of years they would need them. So we're like, we need like 70 ship years to do all this wind turbines we're talking about on the, on the East Coast. You're like, well, okay. If I have one ship, it's going to take 70 years. If I have two ships, it's going to take 35 years. Like, okay, there, there's a balance in there. The question is- oh, not, like man, you, like man hours. Like man hours, right. But it's like, yeah, yeah. but it's ship years. Like, oh, okay. That, I guess that makes sense, right? But how many ships do you build? <laughs> I think that's the question. Like how fast, if we have a 30-30, a, sorry, a 30-30, a 20-30 deadline to put all these wind turbines out there, and it's sort of back end loaded, but it's, you know, years uh, 2026 to 2030 is when probably most of these things are going to happen. Uh, you're, you're still stuck, right? You're trying to do 70 ship years and roughly four years. So you're going to need about, you know, do the math, right? It's a lot, 20 odd ships probably. That's a lot. And if, you, if, they, if they're only used for a couple of years, do they pay for themselves? And so the whole thing is just seems to be a little bit of a jumble right now. And I'm not sure there's any simple answer to this question of how many ships you're going to build, or I think what's more likely to happen is they're going to give a waiver on the Jones Act and let other ships come in there temporarily because you Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, all uh, New Jersey, all these states that are trying to do this renewable energy uh, piece offshore want to get them done. And if there's no ships, the states will start complaining and rightly so they should complain uh, so there's going to be a real interesting uh, conflict happening at the executive level in the United States because uh, the, the Biden administration is pretty pro-union. And I would assume there'd be pretty much pro-shipbuilding in the United States. That'd be something they would promote. At the meantime, you're, you're in conflict with uh, the, the states that are trying to get these wind turbines installed. So who knows right now? I just think that the, the effort is massive, massive. I guess if there was like if the shipbuilders or companies that you know run shipbuilding operations, if they really felt certainty about the pipeline of offshore, then it would be very obvious that they would invest in a bunch of ships. So my assumption, you know, given that we see foresee this shortfall, my assumption is that they're not feeling confident that this, you know, 10, 20, 30 gigawatts over the next decade is actually gonna go ahead. So Maybe there's, um, yeah, maybe that's the, the root of the problem because, I mean, if ships are going to be in very short demand and you've, you've got, you know, you've got cornered the market, then, um, that seems like a really good way to make, <laughs> make a lot of money. So, yeah. But you, what you wouldn't sure. want to do is to build 10 ships and then find out that, um, you know, the, the plans didn't go ahead and your ships weren't doing anything. So I guess that that's the, the risk reward that they're trying to balance. That's what we do at the Olympics every year. A country builds like <laughs> a gigantic $2 billion stadium and then it's never used again. And the whole Olympic village goes quiet. So right. I feel like, yeah, probably get away with a couple of ships, but you're right. It's a, it's a comp it's complex math. It seems like to figure out how many we should build, how fast it needs to get done. And then what do you do with them afterwards? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you wonder if they can figure out the, uh, that, you know, these ships can be, all right, when it's done, it's lifetime, we can just convert it to a cargo ship oh, and maybe. sell it off to, to Myersk or some other company. They can haul um, hydrogen. You, wa <laughs> you wonder what their like base platform, if they have like a base platform, kind of like anything else where once it's done this part of its you know service life, we can just, you know, swap out some components and make it useful somewhere else. I assume that's probably a thing, but 
I don't know. Do you think that this pipeline is just going to switch off in 2030, though? I would have assumed, you know, that's the intermediate target for offshore wind, and then we want, that's a good point. We want more after that. That's a good point. I, I, yeah, I, probably won't. Because it will only be um, – offshore wind will only be cheaper and um, more more reliable and more, more better understood by then. So I would expect that, you know, like if you look at the history of installations of solar or onshore wind, it's all exponential curves. We, you know, we're still on those ex- exponential part of the curves for the most part. So I would expect that we're just going to, you know, accelerate into the future. So I'll be really surprised if, you know, 20, 2030 comes and on the 1st of January, everyone converts their ships over to, to doing something else. I expect that there'll still be demand <laughs> for installing more, more offshore wind farms after that. Well, you also wonder what's powering these ships in 2030 or 2040. Is it still diesel or are they powered by hydrogen or electricity or some other form of fuel? I don't know, Alan, stuff like that that requires so much torque it's probably going to be a, a pretty slow conversion, I would assume, to other sources, right? Yeah, and, and there's a lot of discussion in the United States at the moment, and, and I think this is going to play out our, in the rest of the world, where with ships, there's a, they're, they're, they have to be greener, essentially. And the only way that ships are going to be greener is they slow down, like a 30% decrease in speed to achieve, to reduce the emissions enough to meet this uh, UN charter uh, requirements, which who knows if everybody's going to live up to it or not. But but uh, <laughs> you got to wonder if it's going to force some of these ships to change their energy sources, right? That they they may make a switch to hydrogen just so they can go faster. So it, it's creating this weird marketplace. And at, at a time where shipping is a priority, we've put some extra constraints on them and it's going to get really tough, I think, over the next couple of months. And then throw in that we're going to be building offshore wind turbine ships. <laughs> it's going to be super chaotic, I think. We're just seem to be able to create, we're seem to be creating more chaos than we are uh, trying to tamp down the chaos at the moment. And I, I, I can't figure it out, really. It's it's hard to, hard to imagine that we could actually make things more chaotic than what we went through the last couple of years, but we're working on it right now. Well, speaking of offshore development, um, Louisiana, obviously state here in the U.S., They've announced an offshore wind goal of five gigawatts by 2035. So they're pushing it back. Alan, why do you think they pushed the goalposts to 2035? Everyone else wants to do 2030 because it's a real <laughs> spectacularly round number yeah. uh, on an even decade. But are they like, hey, yeah. guys, we're, we'll give us a little more time. We're, you know, we're a little more laid back down here. We need more time for jazz. We'll get there when we get there. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe. Well, maybe they're going to buy these uh, offshore wind turbine ships at a discount because I'll be sitting with mm. for sale signs on them. They can buy everything at half price. That's, <laughs> that's maybe part of the answer. Like you don't want to jam up the system with more going on simultaneously because you don't have any way to do it. So, and I, the, and, and, there's just the, the part about Louisiana always scares me because every year we hear about these horrible hurricanes that come through and wipe out everything. And I'm thinking, man, I, I'm sure People like Rosemary are designing wind turbines to handle Category 5 <laughs> hurricanes. That seems doable, probably. But it just doesn't feel right. And uh, and I, did, I <laughs> if you're going to rely on wind turbines and the cable and it brings them on shore, I think you also have to harden them like crazy to make sure they can handle those one to two massive uh, hurricanes that happens. I, can we even do that? 
I don't know. I don't know. And I think Rosemary's response is, well, you have oil rigs out there. And yeah, we do. But they don't use the wind to generate power, right? Or they're pulling oil from the surface of the ocean. <laughs> they're not tied they to the speed of the different. wind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They seem wholly different. And have you designed wind turbine blades, Rosemary, to handle category five hurricanes? I mean, you definitely could. And every now and then I see an article about someone who has designed a hurricane proof wind turbine, usually not a major manufacturer. It'll be some, you know, um, small, small startup or often a, a research group, but it's not a matter of, can you design something that strong? It's a matter of how much will it cost to, to design something that strong? And is the yeah, electricity you that you get out the end of it? Is that, um, you know, is it still economical if you've had to make your, your turbine five times as strong? So um, that's the that's the real question, and I haven't seen anybody come up with you know a favorable outcome from that that analysis before. But it doesn't mean that that we won't if they want them want them bad enough and are prepared to pay what it costs. Then <laughs> there's no engineering reason why they can't can't have that and have it you know safe. Well, on the other side of it, would you just make it? Because you know that how sometimes they have like breakaway stuff where if something's gonna fail, they want it to like kind of fail easier and just like it'll go like. They could just, instead of making them hurricane proof, they're like, well, if it gets to like super duper category five, it's just going to go into the ocean. Then it's going to be fine to stay there. Like it's, it's a, it's coral, <laughs> you know, like, they, like we talked about before, like they just build in, if a hurricane knocks us over or it, like, it's good just to leave it. Like it's fine. Would that ever be a thing? Or is that just a nonsense, another nonsense idea for me? It depends how often you expect it to happen. If, you know, you're trying to deal with a one in a hundred year storm in that way, then maybe, um, yeah, and I do see people propose designs like pretty pretty commonly actually, especially in small wind turbine design. They design it so that it's got you know some sort of hinge that in really strong winds it will it will fold and you know kind of collapse and make a less drag for the the wind. But again, I've never seen anything like that commercialized. And it's because if you add a add a hinge or a moving part, you're just adding a failure point to to the design that yeah, yeah right. it, it might fulfill its um, its need every hundred years. But then, you know, you're probably going to get a lot of failures when you, you didn't intend to um, just in normal operations. So they don't usually end up being a, a really good overall solution. Well, then in the spirit of what you mentioned earlier, Rosemary, do you feel like it's probably just going to be a good thing for the industry for a pretty big hurricane just to come through sooner than later? Just like get it out of the way and just like, let's see how they fare rather than, you know, 20 years down the road where we've installed a million turbines. And then a hurricane comes through and you realize, oh, maybe they don't hold as well, up as well as we thought. If this hurricane had hit 10 years earlier, we could have already been on proto, you know, generation six and we'd be, you know, we would have learned from it a long time ago. Is there an advantage to maybe it happening now or would you rather it? still get put off in the future. Well, that's interesting because normally I'm always saying, just try it, just try it, just try it. But this is one uh, situation where I think that you can definitely use maths to, <laughs> to tell you what's going to happen in this situation. You know, you, you <laughs> can tell when you've got a paper paper design and as long as you know accurately what the wind speeds are, are going to be, then y you can already know what's going to happen. You, you can, yeah. And so, no, I don't think that we should be installing a bunch of turbines that we're not sure of they're going to fly away when a tornado comes through. Um, so, yeah. But we're not really going to know until it really gets tested. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not tested or that, that they wouldn't be clear they're built to withstand that. But like you said, there hasn't been a Hurricane Katrina go through any of these, right? I don't know that's happened over in no. Europe or anything, right? They don't really get no. hurricanes there. 
Not, so not like we do, no. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would recommend that they start out small, but they don't put up a thousand wind turbines, and then um, you know, before they experience uh, really, really strong wind speeds. So, from from that point of view, yeah, I agree. The winds in the Gulf of Mexico aren't particularly strong. They're they're like uh, seven to the average winds are seven to eight meters per second. So it's not the strongest winds in the United States. Not even really close. I think it's just more consistent wind, and so you're going to have. Uh, wind turbine designs that are that are probably larger rotors because the wind speeds, the average wind speeds are a little bit slower. And that that start, you know, I start thinking like, okay, we're we're roughly at you know some hundred plus meter diameters now, uh, hundred fifty meter diameters now. You're going to be in the, probably the 180, 200 meter diameters by the time this thing rolls around, and that's that's. You start doing the math on that, you think, wow, that's just really massive articles of wind blades and towers and nacelles and multiply that times the wind speed. It's just a difficult problem to solve. Let's say it's not solvable. You put a man on the moon, we can probably figure out this one. It's just it's just a question of uh, the unknown, <laughs> unknown unknowns that you always find out the hard way with. Yeah, and I think it is a tricky economic problem if you've got moderate average wind speeds, which is when you're generating your your money, right, from the the wind speeds right. that, that you see right. while the turbine's yeah. operating. So if they're moderate, but your extreme winds are very high, that's a bad combination because you um, you know you don't generate any more electricity because you got strong um, extreme winds. You're you're obviously not operating <laughs> through those events. <laughs> So you're just paying to withstand it, but not really benefiting the rest of the time. So I think that that's why you haven't seen a whole lot of development of wind farms in those areas, um, because it's just it's a lot more cost effective to put them other places. Well, as a side note, this whole conversation, uh, Fred Olson Wind Carrier, they are launching an IPO uh, on the Oslo Stock Exchange, and they're one of the leading installers. They own three jackup vessels. Um, so as we talk about, you know, the demand for jackup vessels and offshore wind, um, installation, maybe there'll be more, uh, companies like Fred Olson going public where, you know, they can try to boost their coffers and get more investment in more ships and, <laughs> you know, and grow. So, um, seems like people are already starting to think about obviously that direction. Cause as we mentioned last one of our previous episodes about stocks and, where wind's going, a lot of these peripheral industries, even if it's tough for the OEMs to make money, a lot of these peripheral companies like jackup jackup vessels, um, they might be in a, a boon where they're servicing and everyone else around, except for the <laughs> OEMs themselves, have a, a pretty good good profit to make here. So we'll see how that continues to play out and if other companies start to form to meet that that need as well. So last on the lineup here today, uh, MIT engineers say they've created a new substance. Uh, they've polymerized a material in two dimensions, um, and they've created something that essentially is stronger than steel um, and as light as plastic. Alan, uh, materials like this, there's a lot of high, uh, very highly complex science behind it. Mm -hmm. What are they claiming that they've done here? Well, it's not just MIT. I did some research on this, and there's other groups that are working on similar technology. It's like, I guess it's, a, it's the manufacturing method, the, the way to sort of up, upscale this thing. The, what they're trying to do is, uh, like uh, epoxies and other thermoplastics, they're, they're like spaghetti in terms of they, they, they have these long chains of atoms that are 
stuck together, and that's what makes them strong. It's unlike like metals, which tend to be sort of crystalline structures. So your steels, your aluminums, and all those all those uh, great metals that we use for for structural things have that crystalline structure, and that's that's why we heat treat them and do all those crazy things that we do because we're we're trying to control how those materials are formed in this really tough crystalline nature. the The problem with doing it in plastics is you 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 can only really make solo chains like spaghetti so the 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 talk has been is can we make them into sort of two-dimensional plate shapes platelets i'll call them that if you can start connecting these chains together you have a much stronger more durable material the problem has been trying to manufacture it and also to get consistency uh of (laughs) it's like it's like heat treating steel you really have to get consistency in what you're doing because you're relying upon that quasi-crystallinity for strength. And if you don't control the manufacturing of it, you will have garbage at the end, something that's unknown, which is don't, not what you want. So the tech, and Rosemary, you chime in here, but if you had a, a, an epoxy system that was much stronger and lighter than what you have today, I think you totally use it. You, you get rid of the tower. You get rid of the steel tower. It may be cheaper to make it out of a strong plastic material. There's just so many applications for this technology, even if it's, if it's still in a little bit in its infancy. You just huge possibilities. Yeah, it sounded really interesting to me, the, the two-dimensional two nature of it instead of just having uh, yeah, like a bulk 3D kind of uh, structure. So that's interesting. With these kind of um, developments, it, the question is always, you know, how how far along in the development are they? And um, once you, you know, I think that it's, they're still making quite small small samples of this now. You know, way way smaller than anything you can do anything practical with. Um, so obviously, there's challenges when they scale up. Usually, they uh, uncover problems that tend to make it more more expensive and reduce the properties a, a little bit. We'd have no clue at this point how how much that's going to adjust. So, yeah, it'll just be interesting to see how close to the you know the currently predicted specs, how close to that we end up once they're able to you know like roll off <laughs> lots of square meters of these kind of of films. But it, it does sound really interesting, and you can imagine combining it with a lot of other materials to yeah just use materials a lot more efficiently and and get get some really good properties um, out of out of the whole composite structure as a whole. So uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, and one of the things I took out of this was it's sort of the um, predictions of the future, right? That if you ask somebody what's the future look like 10 years from now in terms of how we build buildings, how we make wind turbines, how we do anything else, most people will tell you it's going to be very similar to what we see right now. And then, boom, here comes this new technology, this quasi-breakthrough, I'll call it, that could be, turned into large-scale applications and just totally wipes out all the predictions we had for what the world is going to look like 10 years from now. And I think that's the hardest part of all these technologies is that the, the rate of change in what we are doing uh, now is so fast that it makes the predicting the future really, really hard. Maybe two, three years out, I think we have a pretty good shot at that. Five years out, gets a little murky. Ten years, like, it's a crapshoot. I, I don't think we can do it. And, and, but that's where we are right now. And I, I, just like we talked about in in uh, putting wind turbines in the Gulf of Mexico, 
I, I have no idea what they're even going to look like in 2035. They may be totally different. They may be vertical axis wind turbines. <laughs> Who <maybe>. knows, right? <laughs> that's well, that's Blade the crazy Runner part. Has, if Blade Runner has taught us anything, <laughs> the world does not change as fast as we think it will. Uh, yeah, right. I remember three years ago when, because Blade Runner, the original, was set it, obviously, it came out in 1982, but it was set in November, November 2019. And when we hit that date three years ago, everyone's like, oh, it's Blade Runner year. We made it. We don't have any of those things. We don't have replicants. No. We don't have an off-world place where we're mining. Uh, we mm -hmm. don't have flying cars. We don't have any of the fun things. So I expect the world to be very similar 37 <laughs> years from now. But I'm prepared to be wrong, happily wrong. So... Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode, the 100th episode of Uptime. Uh, thanks again for listening. We really appreciate you making it 100 episodes uh, is uncommon and we don't take it for granted. We appreciate your listenership. We've grown quite a bit in these two years. And uh, so, yeah, we're thankful. Um, so please, if you continue to enjoy our work, share the show, leave us a review. Um, and we will see you here next week on the Uptime Win Energy podcast. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. This is why it just makes sense to install a WeatherGuard Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your technicians are going up tower. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.